Welcome to the Radical Imagination Podcast, where we dive into the stories and solutions that are fueling change. I'm your host, Angela Glover Blackwell. Police violence toward Black and brown folks seems like a daily occurrence. Our news feeds are dominated by images of police interventions gone wrong, mental health crises turned into life-threatening situations, and routine traffic stops resulting in Black people being murdered. As a result, police are becoming increasingly at odds with the communities they are sworn to serve and protect. Today on Radical Imagination, we'll talk to two people who are developing alternatives to 911 and are working to build up robust networks of non-police responders to keep their communities safe in times of crisis. Our first guest is Brandon Anderson, an abolitionist and founder of the police reporting network Rahim. Once an advocate for police reform, Brandon learned from monitoring police interventions that the only way to keep communities safe was to give people the tools to provide emergency triage without involving police. So he and Rahim created an app. Brandon, thank you so much for joining. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Thank you, Angela. Tell us a little bit about your background. I understand you're a veteran and you have a personal connection to the work that you're doing now. Yes, I was a veteran for five years. I was recruited right out of my GED program in the middle of rural Oklahoma to join the Army for five years. And it was while I was in the United States Army that the love of my life was killed by police during a routine traffic stop. You experienced the tragic loss of your partner at the hands of police. And you've come to abolition as a way to be able to have something at least positive come out of the tragedy. I've heard you call yourself a queer Black abolitionist. What does abolitionist mean today? When I'm normally talking about the word abolitionist, I'm talking about the way with which this country negotiates conflict. And right now, the country and many other countries in this world negotiate conflict with the use of police. And police are trained for not very long, but generally for long enough to use violence and force as a means of negotiating conflict. Abolition has been, it, is, it has been a different way to negotiate my conflict. It's also been a different way to acknowledge that conflict exists. For me, the greatest gift of abolition has been grace. What exactly is Rahim? Rahim has been, for the past four years, the only independent service for reporting police in the United States. Rahim documented and analyzed more than 2,500 reports of people's experiences of physical abuse, of economic exploitation, of patterns of neglect, and psychological and verbal abuse during police interactions. We ran a website that made it really easy for people to report police violence and get connected to a free lawyer, help them file a formal complaint against the officer, and then unite them with the local advocacy organization. Those reports generated a database with which organizations leveraged to run campaigns to shrink the role of police. 
normally in policy or narrative change making. And so this time last year, our mission was the same as it is today, to make the world a safe place for all Black people. But as an organization, we hadn't really you know, made that leap to ask, what if policing is incapable of providing safety for all people? And what is PATCH? What does that stand for? PATCH stands for People and Technology for Community Health. PATCH is an alternative dispatching system that Rahim is building. When we retired Rahim's police reporting service in October of last year, we decided to focus on building new relationships and creating technology that, you know, connected people to care without the need for police involvement. PATCH Network is a membership entity of Rahim that includes crisis response organizations, public health agencies, mobile crisis teams, mutual aid resources, and abolitionist organizations, and individuals that work together to create a, a, a safety outside of the system of policing. Our PATCH app is currently in the building phase, and we're just getting started, and it will include a mobile app for people to request help a staff management and dispatching software for organizations to coordinate their responders and responses and measure their impact, as well as a mobile app that supports caregivers, dispatchers, each other, and the organizations in their network. The idea here is to connect those organizations to the dispatching service and the quality of infrastructure that they require, the same sort of infrastructure that cops are being provided, we need to be able to provide for our caregivers. And so Rahim is building patch for an infrastructure for caregivers to be dispatched during limited amount of crises that do not require a police officer at your door with a badge and a gun. Brandon, it sounds like listening to you that what you're describing is a transition from Rahim being an organization that was reporting on police and over time seeing something deep come out in terms of the lessons that you were learning and it created a pivot and the Mm -hmm. pivot was toward abolition and the development of the alternative to 911. Yes. Most certainly. Absolutely. And beyond that, I wouldn't even call it a pivot. I'd call it an evolution. When we were running Rahim in the first four years of the organization, I thought, wow, this is a system that has to be working. If it's not working, why do we have this system? This system wouldn't be here if it wasn't meant to work for us. I have day in and day out from the day I was born been taught that police are here to keep me safe. But everything, everything in the home of my family, everything in the homes of my friends, even the loss of my partner, the loss of my friends' partners has taught me that police are here to do nothing (laughs) close to keeping me safe and that police cannot keep me safe. We have to demonstrate to the world that police cannot serve functions of our society. And so I think we shrink the role of police function by function by function. That's a transition. And I want people to recognize that right now as just like individuals struggling to understand what kind of world do I want to live in? 
And do I want to live in a world where my conflict is constantly negotiated by that? Brandon, I am so glad that you had the radical imagination to turn your personal grief into a system that could help millions. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Angela. Patch is a revolutionary digital platform providing emergency and mental health services for people who don't want to call the police. When we return, we'll hear from mental health clinician Arturo Carrillo, an emergency mental health care provider who says he's never once benefited from the presence of police during any of his hundreds of interventions. What he says his community needs is the support of each other and their government. And we're back. Arturo Carrillo, thanks for coming on Radical Imagination. This is exciting. Thank you. Non-police emergency response is an extremely relevant topic right now as we see strong pushback against the defund the police movement, even from those who were initially supportive. Critics of the idea cite increases in crime and feeling unsafe. How are mental health services connected to community safety? As a mental health provider, you know, I've been in the field for well over 15 years at this point. And the way I've always seen the issue of mental health access is about prevention. It's about healing. It's about supporting individuals who've been impacted by violence and harm in their lives in order to prevent further harm to be caused on others. And unfortunately, it's, our system's not built that way. And so often we, we wait for the crisis to happen. We wait for the violence to happen. And then maybe, maybe there's some sort of effort to make uh, opportunities to heal, but more more likely people are incarcerated and those wounds never are uh, afforded an opportunity to heal. So for us, you know, the connection between community violence and mental health is a very direct connection. And unfortunately, what the crises we're seeing in communities is because of the lack of investment has unfortunately just boiled over. Arturo, what do people who are trained in mental health do in an emergency response? The primary function of, of the responder in that moment is to de-escalate the individual um, as social workers, we're trained uh, to make sure that in supporting that individual during that crisis is all about getting that person back to their baseline. It requires a lot of training. It does require a lot of experience, but it, it is something that you know social workers, psychologists, and other behavioral health workers are very much well trained in doing. And for us, you know, it really is why we do this work. It really is important to get people who are in their most vulnerable moment to a better place. What I'm picking up from you is that this type of intervention requires mental health responders, even if we did have responsible policing. Is that accurate? Part of what's so sad about this whole situation is that people know when their loved ones are getting to that place. You know, 
we, we've heard numerous examples in community where, you know, people know that their older daughter or son is at a point of escalating and they would like to do something about it before it becomes a full-blown crisis. Unfortunately, people are not given that option in, in the society. You know, the only option you have is to call 911. And often that's when things have escalated to a point where it is problematic. Have you ever been in a mental health response situation in which you felt the police were actually needed? I have not. Just the presence of an armed official, just by having those flashing lights outside, just by knowing that the police are involved and can be involved at any moment, really does make situations a lot more riskier for everyone involved. I had a situation recently where we had a, a, a community outreach worker call me and ask to have a alternative response team sent to the house of a young man that they work with. This young man is not a dangerous individual, but he was having a mental health crisis. You know, unfortunately in Chicago, we do not have that alternative. And so somebody in the community had to call 911. What ensued was that the SWAT team showed up to the house to respond with that crisis. And I can't think of a worse way of dealing with a young man who already is facing, you know, as we know in low-income communities of color, hypercriminalization just for being a young brown man. You actually think that we need more public investment in mental health centers. This not only provides services for people who need them in the places where they live, but it pushes back on the privatization of social services. Mm -hmm. Why is government response to mental health so important in your estimation? You know, it, it really comes down to that. It, it does mean that we have to make an active investment in prioritizing what we want for our citizens. The immediate support that the individual needs, assessing the crisis, and then providing the aftercare necessary to prevent the next crisis from happening. It's a cheaper alternative than what our current system is. And it also allows for people to be approached and supported with dignity and respect. We would want that for our loved ones. We would want that for ourselves in the most vulnerable moment of our lives. Prioritizing that sort of investment makes all the sense because one, it gives people the opportunity to receive the care they need from trained professionals. But two, it also builds a workforce. We want to treat those jobs also with dignity and be able to make sure that those employees are, are compensated accordingly, are taken care of so they could stay in these communities to provide care long term. And so, you know, that only happens in the same way that the cities think about policing as making sure you take care of police officers so they could stay in the force. Uh, until retirement, we'd have to think about responding to crises and mental health needs in the same manner. Can I take away from what you've said that in many cities, we actually have the basics for an infrastructure to provide public health support, but it needs to be expanded and better funded? Or are we in a situation where we need to build that infrastructure from scratch? Well, it depends on the city. Uh, I could speak for Chicago. Chicago has the basic infrastructure. Advocates have for many years fought to keep those public mental health clinics open and, and viable resources for, for community residents. The city of Chicago once had 19 of those public mental health centers. After years of disinvestment, uh, we're down to five. So keeping those five open have been the priority of our efforts, but we know that as crisis response expands, you know, the triage care, the follow-up supports that are necessary have to also be accompanied by the follow-up resources. And, and that infrastructure has to be built in the same manner that crisis responses. You know, I think about it as like the fire department, right? We, we, we send out the fire trucks, but we expect there to also be a fire station. 
areas of Chicago that are most that are the most affluent have a ratio of 4.5 therapists per 1,000 community residents, whereas low-income communities of color have a ratio of 0.2 therapists per 1,000 community residents, right? Why is it that our city dollars are not building up that infrastructure at the same time that we're actively thinking about how do we respond to crisis? Arturo, the way you describe it is so powerful and it's so easy to visualize now. In 2021, Mayor Lori Lightfoot announced that she was creating a program to pair police officers with mental health professionals when responding to a mental health crisis call. What is your involvement with this? You know, we've had to advocate really strongly for this. It was not an easy victory by any means. We received a lot of resistance when we introduced our council order and never actually had a full hearing. We really had to push Alderman to push on this administration as a result, because of our advocacy efforts, there was a compromise in which they added two non-police teams to the pilot program in the city of Chicago. So we are happy to finally see that the city of Chicago will have a pilot with non-police involvement. And our efforts and our coalition was really pushing for that to happen. It would not have happened otherwise. Again, it, you know, there are roles for police, but responding to crisis is not one of them. How does one access non-police response in Chicago? Unfortunately, it's not an option for individuals. And the pilot is such a minuscule pilot. We're talking about one team operating out of one police district in one area of the city during, I believe, the hours of 10 to 6. So you almost have to be the luckiest individual at that moment to get the non-police crisis response that you're looking for if you're calling 911. Again, there's been this, this hesitation to think about giving people the option of not involving police to crisis uh, situations. And, and in the city of Chicago, we continue to see that as a challenge. So paint a picture for me about what needs to happen in order to set up a police-free emergency response system. You know, first off, the infrastructure has to be built at the same time, right? The, the follow-up care that people need has to be embedded within this crisis response system. And that has to be scaled. So, you know, we've talked about having a community mental health center in every ward. Uh, just like we have public library centers and public park systems and public schools in every community, a mental health center should be part of that infrastructure in our community. You know, we also need an alternative crisis line that is not 911. We want people to have the option Thanks to, to policymakers in Springfield, now we will have 988 as a crisis line for people to utilize. And then we have to, you know, build a workforce. We, we want to see the workforce that is representative of community responding to crisis. We want to see crisis workers be from all walks of life to have a, a variety of experiences. And we want those community residents to be embedded in those same communities responding to those needs that we see on a daily basis. That really will take a substantial investment, but it's very much feasible. It's nothing that is not possible for a city that makes the amount of revenue as it does in Chicago. What would be an effective way for non-police first responders to connect with one another and connect with people who need emergency help? Would an app work for these situations? Yeah, I think having an app would be one way of doing it. You know, having people be able to rely on referrals to crisis response in a way that's very, very preventative. Can we involve a social worker uh, at the moment that somebody runs out of their meds, can we have uh, domestic violence situations be handled in a way before situations get uh, escalated to the point of, of violence? We think about entryways into the system as a multitude of options, right? Giving people the opportunity to engage with supports 
before things become critical. And so for us, yeah, having a nap, having a peer support workers and communities, having roving care teams that can be present after school, talking to family, just to have conversations and see what needs are there and being able to engage people proactively. There is many ways if we had the workforce to do so. Artur, I have one last thing to ask you. Sure. You are an extraordinary advocate, and you are really showing us how to make a difference in the world. I wonder, what advice would you give to your younger you? Hmm. Well, that's a, uh, that's a deep question. Um, you know, it's hard work. It really is hard work to think about a different world, but it is important, right? It, and I think about the youth who, who really have the energy to drive us forward. And they, we saw that in the streets. We saw that when people were calling for a radical change to our system and, and calling to defund the police. And that energy pushed the older generation to do something. And I think about myself at that age and I felt like I was lost and not feeling like I knew how to get there. But that energy in of itself can move mountains. And so I I do encourage this next generation to continue to push and really push the envelope because unfortunately the systems are made in such a way that they're protected to keep going in the way they are. And it does take that energy to really push forward something different. And so uh, I would tell myself that, yeah, I was on the right track and working with people who have the experience and who have that deep knowledge is also part of change, right? It's building bridges and and making sure we're working together um, is really the only way we can achieve that change that we're looking for. Arturo Carrillo, thanks for coming on Radical Imagination. Thank you for the opportunity. It was a really great conversation. Thank you. Arturo Carrillo, an emergency mental health care provider. Stay ready so we don't have to get ready. A wise friend used to say that to me. Today's episode reminds me of her words. Brandon and Arturo are ensuring that advocates for a society that prioritizes safety and trust, not harassment and punishment, are ready to lead with the practices, policies, and infrastructure that will be needed. Even as we demand the end to a system of policing based on racial violence and oppression, we also need performance of alternatives. We need to demonstrate exactly what it is we want, not simply a different way, but the best we can imagine. Brandon is showing us how to use technology to scale our best approaches. Arturo shows us how communities can provide what people in distress really need. The aid, care, support, and love of their communities. I'm ready to live in a world like that. Radical Imagination was produced for PolicyLink by Futuro Studios. The Futuro team includes Marlon Bishop, Andreas Caballero, Joaquin Kotler, Stephanie LeBeau, Juan Diego Ramirez, Liliana Ruiz, Sophia Lowe, Susanna Kemp, and Andy Bosnack. The PolicyLink team includes Glenda Johnson, Venice Dunn, Virtual Ramos, Fran Smith, Lauren Madden, Perfecta Oxholm, and Eugene Chan. Our theme music was composed by Taka Yusasawa and Alex Segura. I'm your host, Angela Glover-Blackwell. Join us again next time. And in the meantime, you can find us at RadicalImagination.us. Remember to subscribe and share. Next time on Radical Imagination... 
if we're talking about our collective histories, the timeline of progress has always been designed to sort of lock out Black, Brown, and Indigenous folks from the future. And so how do we start to think about that and undo that? That's next time on Radical Imagination. <laughs>